0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Clearly, 9-11 Anthrax was itself part of a series of closely related events. And these consist of a number of run-ups to 9-11 that created the image of Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda as a plausible patsy that could be blamed falsely for 9-11, and then a series of post-9-11 false flag terror events that were designed to continue the meme, to keep the pot boiling, and to convince Americans and Westerners that evil Muslim terrorists were still a mortal threat. So, inspired by Lance DeHaven-Smith, I've kind of connected the dots on the whole series of apparent false flags that has created the public myth of the so-called war on terror.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Deconstructing False Flag Terror. Kevin Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, humanities, and other subjects at several American colleges and universities, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He holds a Ph.D. in African languages, Arabic, with an Islamic studies focus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is one of the world's best-known Muslim critics of the War on Terror. He is the editor of two interfaith anthologies, 9 11 and American Empire, Volume 2 Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out, and We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9 11. He is the author of Truth, Jihad, and Questioning the War on Terror. Kevin Barrett, welcome. Hey,
1: it's good to be back with you, Bunny.
0: Yes, good to have you back, Kevin. Could you talk about the global war on terror and how pre-9-11, 9-11, and post-9-11 terrorist incidents have served to support the global war on terror in general? And then I think I'd like to go through some of these actual events with you.
1: Well, that's a good question, Bonnie. You know, I. I had to include an essay in this Charlie Hebdo book, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, on this very topic. Uh, The chapter is called Pre and Post 9-11 False Flags, How Weapons of Mass Deception Are Interdependent. And I came up with this. I was really inspired uh, by Lance DeHaven Smith, who's a professor and uh, a really important, uh, well, I guess what uh, the French president uh, would call a conspiracy intellectual, uh, even though... Lance didn't get named as one of the world's five leading conspiracy intellectuals, as I did. <laughs> I'm not sure why that would be uh, by... uh Hollande? Yeah,
0: Ol- yes. Well, Kevin, tell us who your uh, compatriots are there on that list.
1: Well, as I recall, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, Hollande's think tank said that the French uh, writer Thierry Maison, who was a seminal 9-11 uh, writer, uh, along with four North Americans... And then he named me, Webster Tarpley, Michel Chosudovsky, and Wayne Madsen. Uh, yeah, so we, we were, for some reason, named as the most notable uh, uh, Intellectuel Conspiracioniste, I think it was uh, the Conspiracist Intellectuals. And I, I wrote him to thank him and said, that sounds a lot nicer than Conspiracy Theorist, which is what they usually call me over here. Is Intellectuel Conspiracioniste actually sounds kind of classy. Maybe it's just the French accent. I don't know. But in any case, uh, Lance dehaven Haven Smith, I think, is in some ways a far more important conspiracy intellectual than just about anyone. And he has a book out called Conspiracy Theory in America, in which he really does a number on the whole concept of conspiracy theories and exposes how this concept is manipulated to prevent people from thinking, uh, starting with how the CIA created the popular meme of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists to try to stop people from looking into the JFK assassination. There's actually a smoking gun CIA memo that was issued to the CIA assets, including their thousands of assets in the media, ordering them to basically insult anybody who was looking for the truth about what happened to President Kennedy using these terms, conspiracy theorist, conspiracy theory. And uh, so, Haven Smith, in in this book, Conspiracy Theory in America, discusses how, uh, along with suppressing research on these issues, uh, there's also a program to try to keep each of these cases uh, hermetically sealed away from all of the other cases. So, we often talk about the Kennedy assassination. When someone uses that phrase, they're usually referring to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But his brother, Robert Kennedy, who would have been president had he survived, was murdered just uh, five years later. And they were both obviously killed by the same people for the same purposes. Bobby, in part because he was going going to go after the killers of his brother, as well as exiting from Vietnam and all the other things that John was going to do that got him killed. So Lance DeHaven-Smith says we should be talking about the Kennedy assassinations, plural. And likewise, we should be making connections between these obviously connected deep events. Taking each one as a separate case and just talking about the logistical evidence that maybe it was a conspiracy uh, is not helpful. That actually serves the interests of the people who want to keep it all covered up. So we need to have a more holistic view, and we need to see that quite often these deep state events are very closely connected, part of a series, part of a program, uh, almost part of the same operation. And an obvious example of this in more recent times is the case of 9-11 anthrax. That's what Graham McQueen, the author of the 2001 anthrax deception, calls it. Uh, He and I actually agreed that we need to change the terminology. We shouldn't talk about 9-11 and then separately talk about the anthrax attacks. Clearly the two are related. He proves in his book that the same people did 9-11 and the anthrax attack, and that both were clearly part of the same program. So we should be talking about 9-11 anthrax, 9-11-slash-anthrax. But if we step back a little bit to take an even more synoptic view, clearly 9-11 anthrax was itself part of a series of closely related events. And these consist of a number of run-ups to 9-11 that created the image of bin Laden and al-Qaeda as a plausible patsy that could be blamed falsely for 9-11, and then a series of post-9-11 false flag terror events that were designed to continue the meme, to keep the pot boiling, and to convince Americans and Westerners that evil Muslim terrorists were still a mortal threat. And so so inspired by Lance DeHaven-Smith, I've kind of connected the dots on the whole series of apparent false flags that has created the public myth of the so-called war on terror.
0: Right. And then the war on terror, of course, has equated terrorism with radical Islam. Would you call that a major component of the global war on terror?
1: Yes. Uh, essentially, Islam and terrorism have been made synonymous in the deep linguistic structure of this this meme of of the war on terror. The war on terror really is a war on Islam, but the word terror is a substitute for Islam both to denigrate Muslims and to disguise the fact that it's actually a war on Islam. James Shaw the famous Jesuit political analyst, was one of the I think American University in D.C., actually came right out and said, he said, I wish that George Bush had come right out and, and called the War on Terror what it really is, which is a war on radical Islam. And there are others who've, who've said the same thing. So, uh, yes, it's, it's a war on Islam and Muslims, uh, and primarily, you know, they, they're calling them radical Muslims, radical Islam. But what it's really about is going after Muslims who stand up to uh, Western and especially Zionist or Israeli uh, political bullying, really. If you look at the actual statistics, Bonnie, this whole thing completely evaporates. First, Muslims commit a tiny fraction of terrorist attacks. According to an FBI study, radical Muslims are are blamed for about 6% of all the terrorist attacks in the U.S. Radical Jews are blamed for 7%. We don't hear much about that. Uh, And radical leftists and Hispanics together make up a substantial amount of, uh, I think, uh, even possibly a slight majority of all of the terrorist attacks. But we don't hear that much about the radical leftists and Hispanics either. All we hear about is whenever there's an act of violence attributed to somebody with a Muslim name, it's terrorism. And this is a clear example of how terrorism and Islam have been falsely equated. And then the idea that terrorism is a threat and that we're all in danger from these evil Muslim terrorists is equally nonsensical and equally uh, falsifiable using simple, straightforward statistical evidence. You're vastly more likely to be hit by lightning or to drown in your own bathtub than to be killed by any kind of terrorist, whether it's the 94% terrorists who are non-Muslim or the 6% of terrorists who are Muslim. Uh, so terrorism is not even a threat, statistically. You're in far more danger when you drive to the store of being killed in an auto accident than you are of being killed by a terrorist in your entire lifetime. The whole thing is ludicrous. Anybody who spends even two seconds of their time worrying about terrorism as a threat is clinically paranoid and psychotic. And yet we've all been inculcated with this mass psychosis.
0: You write that, quote, maintaining the myth, unquote, of 9-11 is accomplished by intermittently creating or publicizing smaller terror events. Could you talk about the pre-9-11 false flags creating a plausible enemy? Now, this is one of the um, sections of one of your articles in We Are Not Charlie Hebdo. Let's start with the 1993 uh, truck bombing of the World Trade Center.
1: That's an interesting case, isn't it? There's very strong evidence that this was actually an FBI setup or we should say perhaps corrupt elements of the FBI were complicit in this bombing. Uh, And some of the strong evidence includes reports even in mainstream media that Imad Salem, the FBI informant who actually logistically organized this bombing uh, and convinced the other alleged perpetrators to be involved, or at least allegedly convinced them to be involved, uh, was the main guy behind this. And then he tape-recorded himself talking with his FBI handler, discussing the fact that the FBI had told him they were going to provide a fake bomb, and they didn't. You can basically induce that the FBI built the real bomb. (laughs) So either the FBI consciously allowed this bombing to happen after they created it through their informant, Imad Salem, or they actually even built the bomb. It was an FBI-built bomb that blew up the World Trade Center uh, in 1993. It's stunning that the media hasn't brought this to public attention in a more prominent way. So clearly, that first attack on the World Trade Center was a false flag, and you can induced that it was done in order to set the stage for the coming big event in 2001.
0: Now, what do we know about the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi? That would be 1998.
1: Well, there's still uh, a lot of unanswered questions about those bombings, but what we do know is that the main person behind these bombings was Ali Muhammad, and Ali Muhammad was a CIA agent. He was, you know, they call him the Al-Qaeda super spy. He infiltrated Al-Qaeda on behalf of the CIA, and he was also a special forces guy, I believe, sergeant, U.S. Army sergeant. Um, He, quote-unquote, infiltrated Al-Qaeda. You know, I'm not quite sure what that necessarily means, because Al-Qaeda, they can't enforce copyright, you know, so anybody can start an Al-Qaeda. So I could say, hi, my name's Kevin Barrett. And I just started an al-Qaeda cell where I am today, sitting here in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> you know, who could tell me that that's not true? So Sergeant Ali Mohammed, anyway, he supposedly infiltrates or steers or creates or something, some uh, al-Qaeda cell, and he's the main god behind these African embassy bombings. Now, the official story is that Ali Mohammed was a triple agent. That is, he infiltrated al-Qaeda on behalf of the CIA and the U.S. military, but he actually perpetrated these bombings, against American interests on behalf of Al-Qaeda. Well, that's, you know, if if, if you believe that, I think I have a few bridges to sell you. But you know, it's, it's not absolutely impossible, it's just extremely unlikely. Now inside sources at Veterans Today, you can take this with however many grains of salt you want because these sources are not verifiable in the academic or normal journalistic way. Uh, but yeah, it's just like people who feed information to Seymour Hirsch. they also feed information to certain folks at Veterans Today who have in the past worked for alphabet agencies. These still have connections. What I'm told from my sources at Veterans Today is that the African embassy bombings were indeed U.S.-orchestrated uh, inside jobs, and they had multiple purposes. Not only were they setting the stage for 9-11, as I talk about in this chapter in We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, but they were also cover operations to bring in thousands of American special operatives into those parts of Africa, uh, in Kenya and Tanzania, uh, because uh, apparently there were some missing nuclear weapons from South Africa, and there were scare stories being spread about these missing nuclear weapons. The Israelis were telling the Americans that Saddam Hussein was getting his hands on some of them. And so the Americans needed, you know, this, this is very serious stuff, you know. Loose nukes is something that if you screw up, you know, cities can go up in flames or be vaporized. Uh, so according to my VT sources, one of the uses of these bombings of the U.S. embassies in Africa was to justify uh, thousands of people, special forces, uh, special people uh, sent over from the U.S. to try to track down and uh, capture these loose nuclear weapons. I don't know if that's true for sure, but one can certainly surmise that it might be.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Deconstructing False Flag Terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, what do we know about the 2000 attack on the USS Cole?
1: Well, the USS Cole uh, was docked in Yemen. Was visiting Yemen, and the official version of this is that uh, a I think a teenager, just a kid with no real experience or training, supposedly succeeded in loading a dinghy with explosives uh, with a couple of equally uh, untrained uh, and naive, innocent <laughs> young friends, and they got this dinghy out to the Cole and blew a big hole in the USS Cole with their dinghy full of explosives. But there's some evidence that the big explosion may have been from within the ship, just like with the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898. That was the false flag incident that launched the war on Spain. The U.S. wanted to steal Spain's colonies in 1998, so they had somebody blow up the USS Maine. We now know that that explosion was from inside the ship. It was then blamed on a Spanish mine or a Spanish attack, and it was used as an excuse to remember the Maine and attack Spain. And so that's how the U.S. stole Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, and uh, the Philippines. So then uh, fast forward to the uh, October 2000 attack on the USS Cole in Yemen. Uh, It it appears that there may have been a pre-planted explosion within the ship that did most of the damage and that this dinghy, which... Uh, apparently was actually there and did explode wasn't the main weapon. You know, this is typical tactics, Bonnie. They did the same thing in Oklahoma City where the truck bomb couldn't have even come remotely close to doing the kind of damage that was done there. On 9-11, planes couldn't have even come remotely close to doing the damage that was done at the Trade Center. Uh, in Bali, a miniature nuclear weapon was set off. They said it was a car bomb. This thing created a huge, created like a Grand Canyon-type crater in the street. And they claimed it was this just a car bomb. It was a miniature nuclear weapon, of course. Uh, over and over and over, we get these professional operations that use professional killers uh, and technicians to do the attacks. And then they're blamed on Patsies. The Patsies never have the ability to carry out the attacks. And that appears to be the case with the coal bombing.
0: I believe in your book, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, with regard to the USS Cole, you mentioned the fact that the uh, the guy that steered the dinghy into the USS Cole was actually disabled.
1: Yeah, he was a disabled teenager. Uh, it's weird how they, they come up with these people. You know, so often we find that these people that they blame as terrorist masterminds are they're quite often disabled. I mean, <laughs> you know, it seems like half the people they've arrested for supposed terror plots since nine eleven in the U.S. are sort of developmentally challenged Muslim teenagers who just went along with what the FBI told them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and so this guy Talfit bin Attaya, who was blamed for the bombing of the coal, yeah, he was he was he was a disabled teenager. We've seen this kind of thing elsewhere too. Who are some of the other uh, disabled people? I'm like, yeah, oh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, actually uh, uh, got, got nailed. You know, he was, he was turned to the CIA. That's how he supposedly caught the alleged nine 11 mastermind. Yeah. Right. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as he, he was, he was turned in by, uh, I think it was Abu Zubaydah, if memory serves, who's, uh, uh, basically mentally challenged, uh, utterly incapable of any serious task. And they tortured this guy, Abu Zubaydah for days and days and days and kind of, realized wait a minute we are just you know he's we thought that this was some you know brilliant operative pretending to be retarded no this is actually a retarded person <laughs> but he they got him to name uh Khalid Sheikh Mohammed however that was done and that was their excuse to go in and go after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed so yeah it's not the first time that somebody developmentally disabled has been uh, blamed for a very uh, challenging terror event
0: So the USS Cole was bombed in the year 2000. Of course, then we come up to um, 2001 with 9-11 itself and the anthrax attacks. We've talked, of course, at length about that. Obviously, 9-11 was the big uh, myth-defining event. How would you describe 9-11 and its aftermath?
1: Well, uh, it kind of beggars description in some ways. It was so far over the top, and that's how they got away with it. You know, evidence was left piled up to the skies that this was a false flag. But because it was so extreme, nobody could easily grasp that this is the sort of thing that the uh, people in the American government, or the American deep state, or the Israeli intelligence apparatus and deep state would ever do. And you know, we don't we don't really think that way. We're all trained to imagine that foreign leaders might be really evil. People like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or you know anybody from some country that we're being trained to despise. Those leaders can do all sorts of terrible things. They're utterly devious. Nothing could be put past them. But we, the good guys, have reliable leaders who care about their people and would never sacrifice their own lives and such. And of course, this is utter nonsense. Our leaders are just as psychopathic as anybody's. Um, so 9/11 was really, I think, an example of a certain exaggerated psychopathy coming to the fore. Uh, the neoconservative movement, in particular, I think, had its coming out party on 9/11. You know, neoconservatives are followers of Leo Strauss, the what? What do we call him? The, the revisionist philosopher who argued that uh, Plato and all other great philosophers have always known that uh, evil always wins and that the wise person pretends to be good in public but is actually evil and selfish inside. Uh, That's the way they read Plato's Socratic Dialogues and they argue that this is a covert hidden message in the great works of all the great thinkers throughout history and that those who get it are then uh, charged with establishing a kind of uh, what we call a group of Platonic Guardians to rule over the society. Such people, and then he he goes with Nietzsche on this as well. That Nietzsche said that uh, the will to power allows the Superman to sort of create his own reality with this great creativity. So they marry these two concepts of this revisionist approach to Plato with uh, Nietzsche and say that the elite, the, the guardians, the neocons, are the only people strong enough to realize that there's no such thing as good in the world. Being good is just being stupid, that the evil win every time. So we have to be the evil. But then once, we're, you know, once we get rid of all morality and we're these Nietzsche and supermen and, and charge ourselves with manipulating the herd, the flock, uh, through big lies and mass murder, uh, but we can do it however we want. So if, if we choose to, we can be relatively responsible guardians like Plato wanted or, or not. Uh, because, as Nietzsche said, you know, let's just create reality out of nothing. Uh, The more outrageous false reality we can create out of nothing, the better. So that's their philosophy. It's very strange, but these people are now infiltrated into most of the leading political science and history departments in the American Academy. And Paul Wolfowitz, the genius strategist, uh, is probably the most significant neoconservative thinker today uh, I'm sure he had a whole lot to do with 9-11. Uh, and uh, likewise, Richard Pearl, the self-described Prince of Darkness, uh, was uh, undoubtedly also closely involved. They're both students of Strauss, followers of Strauss. So so when I look at 9-11, you know, rather than getting bogged down in all of the logistics of how they perpetrated this big lie and this mass murder, although I, I'm interested in that too so we can prove that they did it, But uh, what's more interesting to me is is situated in history, including intellectual history. And I think 9-11 was the moment when the neoconservative movement, which, of course, is is very closely tied to the state of Israel. vast majority of neoconservative leaders are ethnically Jewish and pro-Israel fanatics. Uh, So these people, I think, seized the moment to create an enemy. And they believe that all political leaders need to create enemies. If you can't find a suitable enemy, create one. The only way that we can have coherent societies is if they're united in enmity against a group or uh, a bogeyman or what have you. So they used this on 9-11. They consciously set up this program to replace the missing communist enemy that had vanished with the end of the Cold War with a new Islamic enemy. And that was the the script. And so then they said, well, how can we do this? Let's stage a massive Pearl Harbor-style terror event that utterly shocks and traumatizes the American people and the people of the world. And creates a break in history between the before and the after, and in the after, we're going to have a whole new world, a war on terror that goes on forever against the enemies of Israel, and uh, we will be pulling the strings and creating political reality for the masses uh, for the indefinite future. That was their plan. I don't think it's quite worked out the way they planned it. I think that they're, uh, they're heading for a, a, a big <laughs> crash uh, pretty soon. They've already, they haven't gotten everything they wanted already. So that's how I situate 9-11 historically.
0: Now, after 9-11 and uh, the anthrax attacks, the next major terrorist attack is the Bali bombing. And now you've mentioned the Bali bombing. I did some shows on this back in the day, and I remember that there were certainly links to intelligence-created Al-Qaeda affiliates over there, etc. But now you have just mentioned here and also in the anthology, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, evidence of a... A small nuclear device now I had never heard that before what, what is the evidence for this
1: well Australian journalist Joe viles broke that story uh, not long after that bombing, and then he uh died or was killed not too long after that. so his work is still archived. People can go back and refer to that. He was the leading voice who uh, who unveiled that the evidence for the mini nuke is actually pretty straightforward that there's just there's way too big of a crater for a car bomb they they said that this uh, a car bomb not even a truck bomb not even a van bomb but a car bomb basically destroyed a hotel and put a giant crater in the street and this is quite ludicrous Um, and even the leaders of the terror group that were blamed for this said it was a false flag Uh, the Indonesian media uh, said it very timidly The polls show that the Indonesian people knew it was a false flag. You know, it's been reported journalistically. Basically, everybody in Indonesia gets it, understands it. We have testimony also from Dmitry Khalasov, who says that he was working for Mike Harari, a former leader of the Israeli Mossad, a kind of legendary black ops guy in Thailand at the time. And according to Khalasov, that that Harari was part of uh, creating the Bali bombing with a mini-nuke. And, of course, just as an aside, Khalasov has also implicated uh, Mike Harari, the former Mossad chief, in nine eleven. Uh, 11 Khalasov says that he was at the party that, that Harari threw to celebrate the success of nine eleven, and that Harari made no bones about taking credit for it. Uh, whether you believe Khalasov or not is another case. Again, this is a cumulative case. We look at all these items and sort through them, and you, know, you can give each one a sort of a level of plausibility. I would say that the... the uh, in this case, the logistical evidence that this was a mini nuke in Bali is is overwhelming. The car bomb cannot do that kind of damage, and whether or not Khalazov is is telling us uh, the the truth, uh, I'd say give him a, at least a fifty fifty.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show: deconstructing false flag terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Is it a fact, then, that uh, regular explosives... Uh, I mean, couldn't explosive take down a building and uh, create a crater? Or would it really need to be a mini-nuke?
1: Well, you can take down a building with explosives. A conventional controlled demolition does just that. Sure. But the way it does it is by slicing the vertical support columns at very, very carefully timed intervals. And if it's not done exactly right, the building is going to topple on its side rather than come straight down. So only the world's best highest-paid professionals come in and and do these demolitions of sizable buildings. Uh, But obviously, a car bomb isn't going to do that. Theoretically, I suppose, if you had a, a really, really weak building or like a super tall, narrow building that had a weakness on the first floor, maybe you could drive a car in there. And if you were lucky, you might perhaps create some kind of partial collapse uh, maybe even make the building topple, although I, I really doubt that i just i don 't think that you can get enough conventional explosives into an ordinary automobile to make any normal building fall down, uh, especially a tall building you know, it's a building taller than, than it is wide but the, in terms of uh, craters, uh, no conventional car bombs don 't create huge craters in the streets where they go off they just don 't they 're not that powerful. miniature uh, nuclear weapons do, and incidentally, um, there was a bombing in Lebanon. As well, that was the uh, killing of the former uh, Lebanese leader Hariri, which, as I recall, also created a huge crater in the street and is blamed by intelligence sources uh, on an, another Israeli mini nuke. In fact, these these intelligence sources associated with veterans today argue that we have a serious nuclear proliferation problem in that the next generation nuclear weapons have become miniaturizable, they're so good, you can dial them down to be the size of a car bomb, you can dial them up to be the size of Hiroshima, Uh, and they're so light, relative to conventional explosives, that in many cases they're just far more economical and inviting to use. We know that the neoconservatives, led by Paul Wolfowitz, have led a movement to make nuclear weapons usable. They said, what's the use of nuclear weapons if we can't use them? They said that in public. But in private, they, and apparently especially the Israelis, have been working on miniaturized nuclear weapons and making them usable. So we have a number of these incidents where, according to Veterans Today sources, uh, Israeli miniature nuclear weapons have been verifiably used. Bali, the Hariri assassination, uh, and now in Yemen. Uh, The Saudis apparently have brought in uh, Israelis to drop miniature nuclear weapons on the people of Yemen, and that's been very well documented. There's film of these weapons. They're clearly nuclear
0: weapons. Oh my God, that's truly frightening. I'm glad you brought up the Hariri assassination, because that's exactly what I was thinking about when I asked you that question about the Bali bombing, because I remember that assassination in Lebanon uh, I believe it was right in Beirut, uh, did create a big crater underneath his car.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and again, the VT sources are incontrovertible. That was another Israeli mini-nuke. And the reason they're dropping mini-nukes on Yemen is that it's just, it's so much easier to go in with a fast, white plane. And the planes that we're seeing dropping these bombs are not big cargo bombers dropping really huge conventional bombs. They're fast. Uh, I, f- I forget the the technical details. Go, Google veterans today, nuclear weapons in Yemen, and you'll get all the technical details. But there's a very strong case that that's going on today. So you can thank your uh, neoconservative friends that nuclear weapons are now being used in the world on a regular basis.
0: My God. Now, after the uh, Bali bombing, the next major terrorist attack was in Madrid. It was the train bombing. At that time, many years ago, I I did a show on that. The details are a little bit sketchy in my mind. I believe they blamed it on cell phones. But weren't there pre-planted explosives underneath the train carriages?
1: Uh. Yeah, yeah, Madrid uh, was another case, just like London, where it looks like they're blaming terrorists carrying bombs on a train, and yet it looks like the trains are being blown up by explosives wired under the train, blowing the metal upward. Uh, same exact thing with the London bombings. So yes, and indeed, in, in Spain, there's been some credible, pretty mainstream investigative work pointing this out. Uh, so it's not really a secret in Spain that this was uh, a, a sort of false flag and that the so-called Muslim terrorists involved were patsies or mercenaries.
0: Yes, the, the details of the Madrid bombing escape me now, but this was blamed on Islamic terrorists, wasn't it?
1: Of course. All, all of these things inevitably are. Uh, and uh, yeah, in the book, I, I quoted a French journalist, and he's, he's not really a, a red pill conspiracy journalist, a mainstream investigative guy. A guy, his name is Mikkel, and he... Uh, went strictly with the official court documents i mean not even he wasn't even going for special information from inside sources just the documents and he stated directly that the official story of these bombings doesn't stand up and that there was obviously a, a cover up the implication being that this was indeed a false flag
0: Yes, and of course, the other train bombing, you've mentioned the London Metro train bombing, was that 7707? I don't remember the year. Was it was
1: 7705. Oh, that was exactly me. 10 years ago. They just observed the 10th anniversary, and indeed, they staged a false flag in Tunisia targeting British citizens in order to remind the British people of the threat from Muslims associated with the trauma of seven.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that was a multifaceted event. And I remember they hunted down these kids and shot them down in another neighborhood. But I remember even in the uh, newspaper, there were uh, photographs of these two kids in the London metro, but the photographs had obviously been photoshopped. I could see badly that. photoshopped badly. yeah. They were supposedly <laughs> yeah. leaning against a railing and one of the railings went in front of one of the kids. I remember that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. when they do that, you almost have to wonder whether they're, you know, revealing the method or something. It's uh, so obvious. You would think that they could do better photoshopping than that. I probably could even, but yeah, and it's, it gets worse than that. I mean, these, these suspects, the people that they blame for the London bombings of seven seven couldn't even have been at the places where the bombs went off. Because it so happened that the train they would have had to take to get there was not running that day. So we have absolute proof that they weren't there. The British claim that all of the, the CCTV security cameras were down, or almost all of them were down, so they, they can't provide any evidence that they were there. Uh, Nick Collerstrom has a good book on this. It's called Terror on the Tube. I actually wrote the introduction to it. And Nafis Ahmed. Who's a? He's a much more timid and careful researcher. He's a, He's got a scholarly position. He's a professor in the UK. So he's scared to rock the boat and really come right out and say what he thinks. But his book also demonstrates uh, very subtly and, and less directly that this was a false flag.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for reminding me of some of those details. There's a lot more. Actually, there was a. Now I'm remembering there was a. There was a drill, uh, being mm-hmm. conducted by Viser. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the head visor I guess, came right out on television and said that this uh, uh, London Metro bombing attack happened right in the middle of a drill for the exact same type of attack.
1: Yes, he, he said the real bombs went off at the exact times and locations as the pretend bombs in the drill. He said he was stunned. I, I think this is what happens with these compartmentalized covert operations. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and apparently Peter Power, the head advisor consultant's, was not advised that this was, uh, you know, that the drill was the terror event. And so here he was, high level working with this drill, and the actual bombs go off and kill people exactly where the pretend bombs were supposed to go off. And for some reason, you know, just like an American who can't believe that his government would do 9-11 or a, you know, a British person who couldn't believe his government would do 7-7. Likewise, Peter Power can't imagine the people he's working for just murdered all these people. And so his, his brain just doesn't admit that possibility. So he goes on television. So I'm stunned. What an amazing coincidence. The real bombs went off at exactly the places where the imaginary bombs were supposed to go off. The exact places and times. <laughs> it's, it's quite a, a revealing moment. One of the best short video clips to show to people who may be skeptical about these matters.
0: Okay, so then we had the London metro bombing in 2005, I believe you said. Then the next major terrorist attack was in Mumbai, India. And I believe, was that blamed on Pakistan? Oh, yes.
1: The Indians, uh, well, a certain element of the Indian power structure tries to blame Pakistan and Muslims, which they kind of identified, for everything bad that happens in India. And naturally, this was supposedly uh, evil Islamic terrorism. But this Mumbai uh, attack in 2008 was clearly, well, there was foreknowledge, uh, the Indian intelligence had foreknowledge, and in fact, there's credible evidence that it was Hindu extremists uh, tied to Israel, actually, in in, uh, Indian intelligence, RAW, R-A-W, which is their intelligence agency, that was behind this, and in fact, behind the whole series of terror attacks attributed to radical Muslims in India. Uh, several of these have been exposed with actual confessions from the perpetrators in some cases. And interestingly, this this 2008 attack was supposedly orchestrated by another CIA agent, just like Staff Sergeant Ali Mohammed blew up the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania uh, when he was supposedly infiltrating Al-Qaeda. Likewise, David Headley, another CIA agent, killed all these people in Mumbai uh, as he was working with the CIA and RAW, the Indian Intelligence Service. The Indian government has become very, very close to the Israeli government. What India is doing to the Muslims of Kashmir is at least as brutal as what the Israelis are doing to the people of Palestine, which is really saying something. In both cases, we're seeing an actual genocide. Uh, So I guess Israel uh, and India have both decided they have an interest in perpetrating genocide against Muslims in unjust seizures of territory. In both cases, the Zionists had no business stealing even one square inch of Palestine ever and yet there they are squatting on stolen land. Likewise, India never had a rightful claim to Kashmir, a very water-rich territory. The agreement of partition was that all Muslim-majority territories are Pakistan. All uh, non-Muslim-majority territories are India. That was a very clear, straightforward agreement. India reneged, invaded, and occupied Kashmir, a massively Muslim-majority area, because it wanted its resources, and it's been slaughtering and murdering the people ever since. So because of this coincidence of interest between Israel and India, those two countries' intelligence services have become very, very close, and the false flag terror experts from Israel have been running all over India, staging attacks to be blamed on Muslims.
0: Now, uh, the U.S. has been involved in this as well, right?
1: Yeah, the U.S. uh, is... The U.S. is is really not a very tightly run ship, Bonnie. It, you know our command and control structure is is not really probably what it should be if you want a country that's united under a government. So we have a lot of different factions vying for power in our government, and left hands and right hands don't know what each other are doing half the time. The whole purpose of black ops, you know, off the books operations, is doing them without anybody knowing. So you know, God knows all of the things that are. Tax dollars or or drug money is, is supporting you know with the CIA spinoffs, military spinoffs, privatized forces, uh, mercenary outfits, the places like you know, Blackwater, XE, uh, the Chris Kyle's new new group. Uh, and all these these kinds of operations tend to be hermetically sealed off from each other. Uh, so yes, Americans are involved in these things, whether they're you know part of a team, whether they're basically acting as mercenaries for. Israel or India or what have you, whether there's a liaison between different intelligence services. If it's the actual intelligence services that are doing it, they sometimes will run these operations in such a way as to you know, liaise with a foreign service, and then it can become deniable. You know, you can show that well, it's, yeah, these are foreigners, uh, foreign agents, foreigners who were more involved in this. Like for instance, nine eleven obviously involved Americans and Israelis, and they brought in some Saudi and Pakistani patsies as well. And uh, Likewise, the Charlie Hebdo affair was probably a liaison between uh, NATO-linked elements of French intelligence, as actually uh, Le Pen, the founder of the Nationalist Party, said right after Charlie Hebdo, and then he got beat up and his house was burned down, Uh, and then also the Israelis. So the Israelis especially like to have liaisons with corrupt or compliant elements of foreign intelligence services to run these dirty deeds, and that's happening in India, it's happening in the U.S., happening in the U.K., it's happening all over the world.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett today's show Deconstructing False Flag Terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's move on to the United States then in these sort of up-to-date post 9/11 events. Let's take a look at the Fort Hood shooter. I know that you mentioned in uh, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, uh, you mentioned Webster Tarpley. I did a whole show with him on this. He did write a quite a brilliant article on the Fort Hood shooting back in the day. What could you remind us about the Fort Hood shooter?
1: Well, there were questions again about whether the uh, the death toll, I forget precisely the number, but uh, was it 29? Uh, it was a real feat of shooting on a military base. So, we're, we're told that this lone nut, Major Nidal Hassan, uh, killed a whole lot of people at Fort Hood. And all sorts of questions quickly emerged. There were reports of multiple shooters, as so often happens in these situations. And then Major Nidal Hassan, like as in so many other cases, turns out to be somebody who was and obviously you know, should have been a screaming, blinking red light on the radar screens of all of the authorities, just like the supposed Charlie Hebdo terrorists. Now, Major Nidal Hassan was supposedly a psychiatrist or psychologist, a military psychologist, but he was obviously off his rocker. <laughs> and he was he was ranting uh, you know, ranting about joining al-Qaeda and things like that. Uh, it, just like Lee Harvey Oswald was ranting about going and joining the communists in, in Russia while he had top-secret clearance at the U-2 base in Japan before he defected to Russia and came back to supposedly kill Kennedy. And so often these, these people that they use for patsies uh, are either – a little goofy, uh, or have to play-act and pretend to be a little goofy. Now, Nidal al-Hassani probably was goofy, and he probably was a victim of a psychological operation by his military psychological colleagues. Those people probably drugged him or something and manipulated him, and turned him into a, a flaming nutcase who could plausibly be portrayed as a Muslim extremist. And then they set up a, a shooting with multiple shooters to be blamed on him. And you know, hypnotizing somebody to start shooting somewhere is a piece of cake. Uh, to the CIA program, MK Ultra succeeded in about 1960, using a combination of drugs and hypnosis They reached the point that they could achieve their objective, which was to create a Manchurian candidate, that is, somebody who could be used to shoot someone uh, and not even know that they had done it or why, uh, because it was all part of post-hypnotic suggestion. So that's been, uh, uh, you know, off-the-shelf technology since at least 1960. Nidal Hassan presumably was uh, one of these mind-controlled patsies. He probably did some of the shooting, but like so many of these other cases, the patsy probably did a minor amount of the damage, and the professionals did the major amount.
0: Then we go on to the Christmas Underpants Bomber. Uh, what do we know about him?
1: Well that that was Abdul Mutalib, and this is one of the most pathetic false flag fizzles in all of history, yet it was reported straight faced and with all seriousness by the media as if well, oh, this guy almost blew up a plane. Well, the reality here is this Abdul Mutalib guy, just like so many of these people he was he was totally incompetent, uh, pretty much of a, a nutcase or you know a, a disposable person, and apparently these false flag terrorists like to use disposable people as patsies. Nobody really minds apparently i don't know anyway, Abdul Mutalib was put on the plane that he was supposedly trying to blow up with his underwear bomb by a well-dressed man, apparently a security expert at the Amsterdam airport. And that that of course was run by Israeli security. And so Kurt Haskell, one of the passengers on the plane has reported this. He was an eyewitness and he's, he's explained just how obvious this was. Abdul Muntala didn't even have a passport. He's, he hadn't, he hadn't, changed his clothes in, in weeks I mean, he looked like he was right off the worst streets you could ever find and he's got no passport and a well-dressed security guy escorts him onto the plane so the plane's flying along and suddenly this photographer jumps up and points his real nice camera right at Abdulmutallab and Phil starts filming him and a significant time later Abdul Abdulmutallab starts playing with his crotch supposedly trying to blow up the plane. And you can't make this stuff up. And he starts screaming, "Allahu Akbar," or whatever. That you know, that, uh, so they get him under control. It turns out that this plastic explosive he had in his underwear—it couldn't possibly go off. He didn't have a detonator. You know, plastic explosive bonding without a detonator—it's just sterno camping fuel. So try try to stick some sterno camping fuel someday into your underwear, and you know, see if you can blow yourself up. Good luck with that. You might you know you might burn some some sensitive parts of your anatomy, but you're not going to blow up anything. So this was a complete joke. You know, they put a, a homeless, mentally completely wiped out character on this plane, started filming him, and then had him go through his, his prescripted actions in order to create the appearance of a radical Islamic attack on this airplane. And Kurt Haskell, the Detroit lawyer who was a pastor on that plane, has completely exposed this, yet the mainstream media is uh, sticking their heads in the sand as usual.
0: And of course one of the big consequences of this Christmas underpants bomber is x-ray machines and the creation of the TSA in all of our airports and uh, of course these x-ray machines a lot of them uh, were being produced by Michael Chertoff's clients isn't that right
1: Sure yeah Chertoff and his friends are making big money off all these machines and they're also inducing compliance in the public they're not just dumbing us down, but they're training us to allow people, strangers in uniform to grope our private parts and to inundate us with toxic x-rays. And if you'll put up with that, you'll put up with anything. Today, the American people appear to be completely incapable of standing up for their interests because they've been reduced to the level of of sniveling, craven sheep who will actually put up with this kind of abuse.
0: And then, of course... More lately, we have the Boston Marathon bombing. Well, now there's a heck of a mess right there.
1: Yeah, it was. It should have been a mess for the people who did it because they failed to conceal their actions very cleverly. Uh, we have authentic photographs showing that the bomb, that the or the backpacks that the FBI tells us held the bombs, which the FBI says were on the, the back of the Patsy's, the Sarnavich brothers, We're actually on the back of these mercenary types wearing Kraft International insignia. Now, Kraft International is like Blackwater. It was founded by Chris Kyle, the American sniper. Uh, And the, the motto of this company is, sometimes violence does solve problems. So these mercenaries apparently were out there bombing the Marathon. And the Patsies, the Sarnia brothers, were put out there to take the blame. And that photo evidence is just indisputable. We also have a number of other incredible uh, items <laughs> related to the Boston bombing. They the FBI murdered execution style a witness who was in their custody. Uh, this was a guy named Todorov who was a close friend of the older Sonev brother, and they started questioning him, and then they just shot. They pumped him full of bullets and finished him off with a point blank shot to the back of the head. You know when the FBI can do that to. Witnesses they're interrogating and get away with it. We're living in a complete police state, and that shows there's something really wrong with this Boston bombing story. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of good work that's been done on this by various investigators, um, and uh, I, I think that you know, the background of these patsies was was interesting. Uh, they were they were tied in to various CIA personnel, including Graham Fuller. Graham Fuller is. He's well he's been supposedly linked to some CIA dirty dealing in Turkey. When I was in Turkey I was told that Graham Fuller traveled around uh, or rather I don't know if he was it was visiting in person or calling but he was he was telling leading Turkish journalists not to question the official story of 9/11 or else. And this was supposedly when he was CIA station chief in in Turkey. So Graham Fuller is a dubious character. I asked him this. I emailed him and he wrote back hotly denying all of these allegations. But in any case, there is all sorts of evidence that the Boston bombing was a false flag. Some argue that the bombing itself may not have been as bloody as it has been portrayed. Personally, I tend to stay away from that stuff because there's just so much other incontrovertible evidence that is going to be easier for the unwashed masses to digest. Uh, When you start saying that some of these people really were not injured or didn't really die, uh, even though there may be some evidence to support that, it's going to alienate uh, a certain element of the people that we're trying to reach. So, so I'll, I'll let my, uh, my various friends who are also working on this case talk about that part of it.
0: Yeah, right. There's a a lot of uh, research on the internet of the uh, the photographs, the videos of of a lot of what went on there. Yeah,
1: there 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 were questions that have been raised about whether that was a a really big bomb or sort of a dud bomb and uh, with a drill and you know amputees playing people having their legs blown off, questions like that. I think those are good questions and and people need to keep investigating them.
0: Yes, and of course e- even the uh, the runners in the marathon uh, have come out publicly and stated that they they told that there was a drill going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, and there was
1: an announcement. Just shortly before the bomb went off, there was an announcement that went up, this is a drill, this is a drill. The Boston Globe texted that there was going to be a bomb drill. The police were doing a bomb drill in front of the library at such and such a time. Well, that's exactly where the real bombs were told went off, in front of the library at exactly that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So once again, just like with Peter Power on 7-7, we have one of these cases where the drill and the terror operation are the same thing.
0: Yes. Well, then we can move on to... uh... Some of these other attacks, we've got the chemical weapons attack in Syria, the Islamic State beheading videos, subsequent attacks in Canada, Australia, France, Denmark, the United States. Have Muslims benefited from any of these attacks?
1: Of course not. You know, that's kind of the the most straightforward approach to this is to ask who benefits. And obviously this creation of an image that there is a huge threat from evil radical Muslims leads to power being used against muslims in general including especially anti-imperialist muslims i'm an anti-imperialist muslim you know i would stand up and say yeah you know a lot of what bin laden said was right the uh, imperialist and zionist powers that have invaded occupied colonized committed genocide in the islamic world murdered millions of muslims stolen resources of the people who live in these parts of the world that's got to end And so, yeah, I'm an anti-imperialist Muslim. And guess what? Having this myth of radical Muslim terror leading to the justification of political and military action against Muslims, especially those who stand up for their rights, this is not helping me. It's not making my job any easier. So, obviously, anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist Muslims are not doing these operations whose effect is to radically harm our own interests, Clearly, these operations, especially if they're challenging or logistically complex, are being carried out by the enemies of Islam in order to gain something. Uh, and I, I wonder sometimes how it is that people don't see this.
0: Uh, Kevin, we began this discussion a sort of an overview of some of the major terrorist attacks pre and post 9-11 uh, by talking about maintaining the myth of 9-11, and how it is accomplished by intermittently creating or publicizing smaller terror events. And uh, this is an idea that you write about in We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, and I think that that's a very, very important idea, maintaining the myth and how this is maintained with these subsequent attacks. They're becoming, and these incidents are becoming almost daily events.
1: Well, that's right, Bonnie. And it's an interesting kind of combination of the big attack and then the smaller attacks that proceed and follow it that they've happened upon, apparently, as what works for them. Interestingly, these neocons have actually come out and said things like, uh, will it take another 9-11 to mobilize people the way we need them mobilized to fight the Muslims? And they come right out and basically say these things. And they say things like, well, you know, actually, if it hadn't been for 9-11, those crazy Muslim terrorists could have kept doing these various attacks that they're doing and they would have gotten away with it. It was only 9-11 that really mobilized people against them. And that's true. In order to mobilize populations, you have to have some kind of really big, powerful, uh, mind-altering, emotion-shattering event. Without that, you could have all kinds of little attacks. And even, you know, no matter how many little attacks they set up, uh, it's really not going to have any effect. I mean, like I said, only 7% Seven percent of terror attacks in the U.S. are attributed to Muslims. Eight percent are attributed to radical Jews, and so on. So it would totally just get lost if you had lots of these little attacks that were being attributed to Muslims without any big ones. Nobody would even notice. Nobody would even care. You know, you'd be you know fifty times more likely to drown in your bathtub or get hit by lightning than to get killed by a terrorist. You wouldn't care. But if they can you know blow up the World Trade Center full of thousands of people on nine eleven uh, and hit half the American public with PTSD and create a a world-changing event, then they can portray each of these little events that nobody would even have noticed, even if they were real events. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, suddenly these little events become confirmations of this false lie, this mythic idea that there really is this big radical Muslim threat.
0: Dr. Kevin Barrett, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Bonnie. I appreciate the great work you're doing. Keep it up.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show has been Deconstructing False Flag Terror. Dr. Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African Literature, French, Humanities, and Other Subjects at several American colleges and universities, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He is the editor of two interfaith anthologies, 9-11 and American Empire, Volume 2, Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out, and We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11. He is the author of Truth Jihad and questioning the war on terror. Kevin Barrett's radio programs are archived at NoLiesRadio.org. Visit his website at TruthJihad.com. That's TruthJihad.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at GB Radio. <laughs>
1: begin you know what
0: i'm saying now the question is are you ready for the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that
1: we all come from the divine And be on the lookout for a spirit
0: snipe, trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?